Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Stick infidelity were overpowering to a man of his temperament. From the Marchese, he went to Tahiti. And his wanderings ended in the Cook Group, six hundred miles to the west. Perhaps the finding of his journey's end wrought the change. Perhaps it was due to his rather practical Tahitian wife. In any case, the wanderer ceased to rove. The spendthrift began to save and plan. In the groups to the eastward, he had picked up a smattering of coconut lore. It was not long before he got a berth as superintendent of a small plantation. With a native wife and the Irishman's knack for language, he soon mastered the dialect of his group. He is one of a very few men who speak it with all the finer shadings. This accounts in part for his success with labor, the chief difficulty of the planter throughout Polynesia. To one interested as I am in the variations of this oceanic tongue, it is a genuine pleasure to talk with Riley. In school he learned to read and write. Beyond that, he is entirely self-educated. A good half of his earnings, I should say, in the days when he followed the sea, were spent on books. A native intelligence enabled him to criticize and select. He has read enormously, and what he has read he has remembered. Each time a new subject attracted him, he hastened to the bookshops in San Francisco, or Liverpool, or Singapore, and gathered a little forecastle library of reference. Like most intelligent men in this part of the world, he has grown interested in the subject of Polynesian research. It is odd to hear him discuss, with strong accent of South Boston, and the manner of a professor of etymology, some question of Mori chronology, or the variations in a causative prefix. Once he made clear to me a matter often referred to in print, but which I had never properly understood. He was speaking of the language of Tahiti. When you hear a Tahitian talk, he said, it sounds different, but really it's the same as Hawaiian or Manukyan or Rotongan or New Zealand Maori. Tahiti is the oldest settled place, and the language has kind of rotted away there. Nowadays, the Tahitian has lost the strong, harsh sounds of the old lingo, the K and the Ng. In place of them, there is simply a catch between two vowels. If you know Rotongan and understand the system of change, you can get on all right in Tahiti. Take our word Alangangi, to play a musical instrument. Tongi means wail or weep. Aka is the old causative prefix. The combination means cause to weep. Now let's figure that word out in Tahitian. 
First, we've got to take out the K and the ng. That leaves a bad start. It doesn't sound good. So the Tahitians stick on an F at the beginning. That's all there is to it. Fatahi is the word. It makes me laugh to think of when I first came down here. I was working in Tahiti, and when I came home in the evening, my girl would look up from her sewing and sing out, O'Reilly, for the love of Mike, I tell her, don't you know my name yet? It's Riley, not O'Reilly. Finally I caught on. I'd been fooled on the same proposition as Cook and all the rest of them. You remember they called the island Otahiti? That O is simply a special form of the verb used before personal pronouns and proper names. The old navigators, when their canoes came out to meet them, pointed to the land and asked its name. Otahiti, said the natives. It is Tahiti. My girl didn't mean to call me O'Reilly at all. She was simply saying, It's Riley. A serious white man, particularly when he is able to recruit and handle native labor, is always in demand in the islands. It was not long before Riley's talents were recognized. Now he is manager and part owner of an entire atoll. I have listened with a great deal of interest to his accounts of life there. Every year, at about Christmas time, a schooner comes to load his copra and take his boys back to their respective islands. Not a soul is left on the atoll. Riley boards the schooner with his wife and takes passage to Papiti for a couple of months of civilization. When the time is up, he makes a tour of the cook group to recruit twenty or thirty boys for the new season, and is landed on his island with a nine-month supply of medicine, provisions, and reading matter. He is the only white man on the atoll. One would suppose such a life deadly monotonous and lonely. But just now he is pining to get back. It is really the pleasantest of lives, he says. Enough routine in keeping the men properly at work, superb fishing when one desires a touch of sport, plenty of time to read and think, the healthiest climate in the world, and a bit of trouble now and then to give the spice a true Irishman needs. Riley is a man of medium size, with thick brown hair and eyes of Celtic, dark blue, perpetually sparkling with humor. I have never seen a stronger or more active man of his weight. In all his atoll he spends an hour every day in exercise, running, jumping, working with dumbbells and Indian clubs. From head to foot he is burnt a deep, ruddy brown, a full shade darker than the tint of his native wife. Sometimes, he says, he works himself into such a pink of condition that he aches to pick a fight with the first comer, but I fancy he finds trouble enough to satisfy another man. Once a huge Selman fellow from the Gambier group attempted to spear him, and Riley called all of his men in from their work, appointed the foreman referee, and beat the two-hundred-and-twenty-pound native, fierce and lithe, and strong as a tiger, slowly and scientifically to a pulp. On another occasion, a half-savage boy from a far-off island of the southern Pabundas took a grudge against the manager and bided his time with the cunning of a wild animal. A chance came one afternoon when Riley was asleep in the shade behind his house. The Pomotan stole up with a club and put him still sounder asleep with a blow on the head that laid his scalp open and nearly fractured his skull. Half a dozen kicks from the ball of a toughened foot stove in the ribs on one side of his chest. With 
that the native left his victim, very likely thinking him dead. Riley's wife, from whom I got the story, was asleep in the house at the time. Toward evening she went to look for her husband, and found him stretched out, bloody and unconscious, on the sand. In spite of her agitation, her kind are not much use in a crisis. She managed to get him to the house and revive him. Riley's first act was to drink half a tumbler of whiskey, his second to send for the foreman. The Pomotan boy had disappeared, overcome by forebodings of evil. He had taken canoe and paddled off to hide himself on an uncleared islet across the lagoon. Riley gave the foreman careful instructions. Early in the morning he was to take all the boys and spend the day, if necessary, in running down the fugitive who, under no circumstances, was to be injured or roughly handled. They brought the boy in at noon, deathly afraid at first, sullen and revived, when he learned his punishment was no worse than to stand up to the manager before the assembled plantation hands. It must have been a grievous affair. Tatuna could scarcely describe it without tears. Riley was still sick and dizzy. His ribs were taped so tightly that he could breathe with only half his lungs, and a two-inch strip of plaster covered the wound on his head. The Pomotan was fresh and unhurt. He outweighed his antagonist by twenty pounds, and fought with confidence and bitterness. The Kanaka is certainly among the strongest men of the world, a formidable adversary in a rough-and-tumble fight. It went badly with Riley for a time. The boy nearly threw him, and a blow on his broken ribs almost made him faint. But in the end, maddened by pain and the thought of the treacherous attack, he got his man down and might have killed him if the foreman and half a dozen others had not intervened. Riley's Island is a true atoll, a broad lagoon enclosed by an oval sweep of reef along which are scattered islets of varying size. Many people must have lived on it in the past. Everywhere there are traces of man's occupation. 